Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss cult artists. Are they genius or just bullshit? What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. I finished my first tape today. I feel I feel pretty darn proud. Gee, how could something so simple and stupid mean so much to somebody, but it does. What should you do? Choose to live and not to die. Because you have a chance as Dan Johnston to go wherever you want. But I chose the darker side. But you should go with the light. What I want to talk about today is how an artist's life influences their music from the listener perspective. The fans take on whatever that is about him or her, and it kind of affects their perception of the artist, and it makes them a fan, or not. I was watching this documentary on HBO about Roman Polanski. Yeah, so Roman Polanski is an incredible director and everything. Right, know? yeah. He did rape a 13-year-old girl. He, he did rape a 13-year-old girl. And, and then he ran out of the country. Yeah, and it's amazing to hear, you know, to hear a lot of the, the actors, how they, they try to give him a pass. The whole documentary is trying to explain it away. Right, and, and that's a bunch of horseshit. Right. certain artists where I'm so fascinated by the backstory that I buy their music or I collect their music or have their music and I think in some ways it's exploitive. Right, it, it, it is and I get exactly what you're saying because that's what uh, what interested me in uh, Smile when Brian Wilson, Yes. when he finished Smile, yeah. I was really into that. I, yeah. I was really into it because of the backstory and Smile is, I mean it's weird, Yeah. but it's not the super brilliant it, thing that everybody no, made it out no. to be. I am going to talk about some artists who have all been called geniuses on some level. Right. Maybe we're going to be a little more realistic about it. I think the term genius, it's way overused. Yeah. Um, people get that label far too easily. A lot of this goes back to Sid Barrett, and there's a couple of reasons. One is that he's like the first real cult artist, at least in my life, that I saw as a cult artist. He also had a little bit of the lo-fi thing going on, right? Because his uh, two solo albums were both, you know, not necessarily produced as much as captured as much as they could with him, mm -hmm. you know, based on his situation and his mental state. But I don't see like this vast genius in, in the Sid Barrett era. I do love that stuff. Right. I may have been tainted myself by the backstory, you know, right. romanticizing the mental illness and stuff. And because we do that. We all do that. Some of the artists will talk about, you know, committed suicide, which in some cases I think was their way into this list of geniuses right. more than the actual records. Absolutely. In a way, he kind of embodies all of the things that the other artists here I'm going to talk about are. Mm -hmm. One of the stories about Sid Barrett that made me, uh, kind of gives you that back story, and this is absolutely true, is that the last sessions that he worked on with the band Mm -hmm. was him trying to teach them a song. This Pink Floyd for a short period was actually five members, including David Gilmour. So imagine the band are in the studio with Sid Barrett trying to teach them a new song. Right. And the song is, was called, Have You Got It Yet? 
Have you ever had somebody try to teach you a song and they might make mistakes or change it kind of between the times they've taught you? I've had, I've had people teach me a song and then change keys. So, yeah. you know, people do that, right? <laughs> yeah. He was doing intentionally every single time he played them the thing. Right. So he would play them something and they would play it back and he'd go, no, 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 it's like this. And then he'd play it slightly different and they would all kind of look at each other and go, okay. And he'd be like, no, 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 have you, haven't you got it yet? Yeah, yeah. And the whole session was, have you got it yet? And it was just him trying to teach him this ever-changing song. Right. And it took them a while before they figured it out. Yeah. So that's pretty fucking weird. But it's not genius. What to me is interesting about a Sid Barrett too is that he had so many influences later on of people I would consider more of a genius like David Bowie. Sid Barrett influenced Robin Hitchcock, Julian Cope, the whole look of Mark Bolin from T-Rex. Right. He influenced David Bowie to a huge degree and the whole 80s Paisley Underground thing. There's a little man in a little house with a little pet dog and a little pet mouse I know where he lives And I'll visit him We have Sunday tea Sausages and beans I know where he lives There was a band called The Television Personalities mm -hmm. And they had a song called I Know Where Sid Barrett Lives Cause I know where Sid Barrett lives and David Gilmour took them on tour as his opening band. Mm -hmm. Well, one night, as introduction to that song, for whatever freaking reason, the singer gives out Sid Barrett's actual home address. That's not smart. No. And, and you know, talk about exploitive. Yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of videos on the internet where people, secretly or not so secretly, were kind of stalking him and filming him just to say they filmed him. Yeah, and for, and for a guy in a weak mental state, that's not that's good. That's sad. And, you know, especially somebody who's paranoid already. Oh, shut up! Another artist like that is Captain Beefheart. Okay. Captain Beefheart was a guy, that's like his stage name. Uh, his name was Don Van Leet, I think is how he pronounces it. And he really started off, like, very bluesish. I was born in the desert, came on up from New Orleans. Came upon a tornado, sunlight in the sky. I wheel around all day with the moon sticking in my eye. Hey, 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 all you young girls, wherever you're at. I've never really listened to a lot of Captain Beefheart, sure. but I know a lot of people who were, who were into it. Maybe I didn't get it. Well, to me, that first album sounds like sort of a psychedelic garage blues band, right? Okay. Nothing terribly even pretentious about it, just sort of of the times. Right. And I like it. 
But then he goes on to this really bizarre level. And these are when he starts getting the tag of being a genius. Right. And if you are a fan of music so much that you go and you look at uh, Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time or so-and-so's top you know, 100 albums of all time, he has an album called Trout Mask Replica mm -hmm. that is always in the list. I don't know how to describe Trout Mask Replica other than avant-garde. Some people have called it free jazz. Honestly, I don't know how to explain it. I feel like I'm pointing out that the Emperor has no clothes. Even the people who say they love the album, right. they'll say things like, I had to listen to it four times before I got it. Well, and if you have to listen to something four times before you get it, you're trying to find something I agree. in it. See, I've done that, but I didn't go and declare it the greatest album ever. Because I'm a student of music, and it has an awesome album cover, Right. I mean, it is really hard listening. My smile is stuck. I cannot go back to your frown land. It's made up of the ocean and the sky and the sun in the moon in all my can see. I think that Trout Mask Replica is cool that it could even be released. Right. But I don't get it. I don't I don't see where it becomes genius. A lot of times people who are into Captain Beefheart are also into Tom Waits. And I, and, and I can see that. Tom, I have the same thing with Tom Waits. See, but I, I think Tom Waits is really great. I don't like everything he does. Yeah. But to me, Tom Waits is genius compared to this so-called genius. Tom Waits. And I can see where Tom Waits got the Captain Beefheart thing, mostly in the gravelly voice. Yes. And a little bit in the production, but really Tom Waits' songs are more like songs. Right. And Captain Beefheart, finding a song in there off of especially his third album on, which I believe was Trout Mask Replica, got more and more difficult. Well, that and the one that you sent me, the, the one I listened to, yeah. I listened to probably about three quarters mm -hmm. of it, and I just kind of like blankly listen to it yeah like, what, what the hell am I listening to right like I said uh, Captain Beefheart started off very kind of blues based uh -huh. and included uh, a 20 year old protege named Ry Cooter okay now Ry Cooter is a lesser known but important uh, white blues style player who's very legitimized he he taught Keith Richards all of those open chords that Keith Richards still uses today. Cool. You know, he had a part in uh, Exile on Main Street, at, well, I, or maybe Let It Bleed, but definitely that period where they were kind of doing more authentic kind of blues sounding. Mm -hmm. And he taught Keith Richards a lot of that stuff and was pissed off that he never got recognition for it, much less compensation for it. Okay. But that's a really interesting person to have in the band. It's sort of like if you took somebody like uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, mm -hmm. and say that he used to be in uh, Bauhaus. 
You know, it, it doesn't really make sense in the long run. Ry Cooter left because Captain Beefheart was so freaking bizarre. Because he was having trouble with his guitar player at the time, who was suffering from nervous strain brought about by Captain Beefheart. And, uh, and he had this record deal with Buddha Records, whatever it was, and they needed some, you know, a little bit of organizational assistance. And he's an imposing figure and very funny, you know. And so what had happened there was I got started messing around with him at his invitation, only to find out that, I mean, that was like a hornet's nest, but that he had great musical ideas, you see. That was kind of an interesting event. I still think that Safe as Milk is a good record. What's really good there is the master tape, because it was mixed badly. I, I was pretty impressed with what he had figured out. Not always logical, but always interesting, you know. The moon was a trip on a dark hood, and they were driving round and round. take LSD constantly uh, and would you know straighten his tie walk off the stage and just like freak out because he thought a girl in the stage had turned into a fish and bubbles were coming out of her mouth oh okay <laughs> so he was kind of <laughs> living in that reality a lot okay yeah but here's the reason I think that the backstory has partly made the legend of him in this album and the reason is is that the period in which they were composing and recording this he basically made the band live with him in this house. And it's not like a mansion. Like it would be like some of them would be sleeping in the corner while others would be rehearsing in the same room in the other corner. Right. And um, they had no food and no money. This wasn't an established band living in a house together trying to come up with music. Also, he was like tyrannical cult-like leader. Oh. Like one of the guys who got out of it later said it was like a Manson-esque type scenario where he would physically beat people and emotionally berate them and they would cry and he would make them rehearse for like 14 hours and it got to where one of the guys hid his clothes outside so that if he could make an escape he could grab them and run right yeah. <laughs> it like it very very bizarre um he dominated them artistically emotionally mm -hmm. and it was just you know the stories of that kind of make you want to listen to the album you know mm -hmm. so you can kind of like, what was going on but to me it doesn't turn it into a classic just because it does an awesome weird ass backstory okay yeah and that's sort of what you know what i'm talking about with all of this
I was living in a devil town Didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town And all my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself In the devil town I was living in a devil town Didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town Daniel Johnston Yeah, that, that, that's a story Yes, so Daniel Johnston, uh, for our listeners um, This is a guy who, who definitely has uh, some mental issues uh, I guess schizophrenia, some other things, right? Yeah. And has a kind of warped perception of things. Like him and his father were flying somewhere. His, his, his father was a, a pilot, uh, and he had a small plane that, you know, he would use as, you know, small plane enthusiasts do. Right. And at some point, grabbed control of the plane, and he caused them to crash the plane. Yeah. His father was such a good pilot or luck or something that they walked away from it. Dangerous. But he would write all these songs. He would do things, um, and you might have, I don't know if you've been around long enough to do this, but when we didn't have uh, recording facilities or even the ability to two-track, uh, I would sometimes play a guitar in a boombox and then play that, bo- that recording while I played something else along with it and recorded it on a second boombox. Yeah, yeah, I've done stuff like right. that. Right. So as you know, every time you bounce back and forth like that, you get the room noise and it gets, you know, murkier and weirder and yeah. you know, nastier sounding. Well, that's sort of like lo-fi. So when I say lo-fi, it generally means a non-professional recording type situation that is going to be affected by the poor sound quality. Right. Sometimes in interesting ways, uh, sometimes in ways that are ridiculous, and I would say 90% of Daniel Johnston stuff is that. And a lot of Daniel Johnston stuff, it was... I would have to actually go back and I want to watch that movie again now that we're talking about it because I saw the um, with the devil and Daniel Johnston I I saw that I guess it was four four or five years ago I guess when when it came out Uh, maybe even longer than that but the songs aren't the songs themselves I guess are good if they're done by somebody who who maybe could retool them but I don't think his songs were were all that good well I think that um, the issue is not whether or not his songs are classic or not but the emotion or the, the fact that this uh, mentally ill person had this perspective that other people don't normally have. And, that, and that is, that's what makes it unique. Exactly. Okay, that doesn't end. It, it, making it you, being unique doesn't make it genius. Right. And being unique doesn't make it good. Exactly. It makes it unique. Yeah, exactly. The artist walks alone. One says behind his back He's 
got his gall to call himself that. He doesn't even know where he's at. The artist walks among the flowers, appreciating the sun. He does this all his waking hours. But is it really so wrong? Some of the things I would listen to, he uh, did this song called uh, Dream Scream. Mm-hmm. And it is pretty cool, but uh, again, like if you listen to it, it's kind of hard to get past the poor sound quality, poor performance in the vocals. Yeah. But he's really kind of like giving this plaintive, unrequited love kind of song. And he does these kind of odd things with the recording. And the fact that he does it so lo-fi is kind of adding layers of stuff that were unintentional. Right. And then so a band like Death Cab for Cutie would do a cover of that. And that sounds cool. That is incredible. But it's also it's also cool if you heard that and then you know the backstory mm-hmm. and you go back and listen to the Dan- Daniel Johnston song. But it as a it is as a curiosity and yeah. not as some sort of validation of genius. Right. It, it it is a curiosity and it is unique. You know, and the, to hear the Daniel Johnston songs done by other people mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah, because the song there there is a good song in there. Right. Okay, and I, I guess maybe that's where the semi genius comes from. That's where the talent was. Right. Okay, but Daniel Johnston himself could not play, could not sing his own songs, could not record his own songs. Yes. Yeah. He was able to write some stuff that other people were able to do stuff better with. We don't really like what you do. We don't think anyone ever will It's a problem that you have And this problem's made you ill Listen up and I'll tell a story About an artist growing old Well, one of the things I thought was um, it was great that somebody with these limitations right. would really do so much. Like, and I mean quantity. That he considered himself an artist and he was constantly doing stuff. That is is cool in and of itself, you know, rather than him sitting and watching TV all day or something. Right. And it is an interesting perspective that most people can't have. Mm-hmm. And it is a curiosity. But I think it's highly exploitive the way he's been used. Yeah. I also think it's bizarre that he would draw, you know, pictures of Casper the Ghost or Superman the same way that everybody who's ever been in second grade has done in a notebook and he would literally have like a lined notebook picture of Casper the Ghost and it would sell for thousand dollars People who, who want to find genius and get and buy into a backstory like that, yeah. that that's not being exploitative, maybe. Well, how about this, as far as exploitive? They would tell him he's a genius, and this is great, and this is great, and this is great. But they're kind of keeping from him. The only reason we really think this is because you have mental illness. Right. If you, were, <laughs> if you weren't nuts, we would say this is terrible. If, yeah, I mean, part of it is going to be a sympathy thing. Right. Part of it is a hipster thing. The, the hipster thing drives me crazy right. because hipsters decide a lot of really bad stuff is good. Yeah. And, and that's the, since the dawn of hipsters. Right. Well, some of this is artists like that. Are you happy? No. Yeah, I, I am doing all right. And I try to write every day and I draw a lot of pictures, you know. 
So I don't watch a lot of movies and stuff like that. I don't have any way of the world type philosophy. There isn't really a world with me. I've got, it's my own world. to the depths, plunging downward down to what appears to be a bottomless So pit. now, as we go, and going we might, inviting ourselves to, to see, see some, some sights. Sight. Good luck. You were the girl who seemed to own the world, and everything was all about you. I took a chance to call you my own. I didn't know a thing about you. Skip Spence. Skip Spence was the drummer with the original Jefferson Airplane. Okay. And then he ended up in a band called Moby Grape. Mm -hmm. And Moby Grape had a few songs uh, that were hits, and their first album is pretty cool. Yeah. 
but it's cool in a San Francisco psychedelic way. Okay. And they have this song called Omaha, which was sort of a hit. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael Stipe and various other musicians did a cover of that that was really cool on this 80s album by the Golden Palomino. So that was really my first instance of even knowing who Moby Grape is. And after that, their albums are less and less interesting, but also he's apparently not there because he is an acid casualty. do things like try to break down his bandmate's hotel room door with an axe. That doesn't, well, no, that doesn't make for a good band. That, yeah. that makes for a good story, but that makes for a very bad and short-lived band. Well, that's disturbing shit. Yeah, right. You, you're, you're talking about possibly killing someone. But he would take so much acid, basically he ended up, you know, uh, hospitalized with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to Nashville and he records this album called Or, uh-huh. O-A-R. And I have a copy of it. Again, out of a curiosity more than anything else. Right. And there are cool there are a couple interesting songs on it. Guys like Robert Plant have been on tribute albums for him. Right. Again, if you listen to the album, it's kind of like without the backstory, I don't think you'd give a shit. That's going to be a recurring theme. I probably also have friends who will be like, oh no, you're crazy. You don't get it. Now, I'm going to start steering towards artists that I do feel have much more merit. Right. But they still have this backstory. Yeah. And it makes them interesting and probably more interesting than they frankly deserve to be. Okay. Have you ever heard of uh, Mark Linkus or Sparkle Horse?
I, the, today was the first time uh, when I was looking through the, the, the pre-show stuff. Well, um, Mark Winkus pretty much is Sparkle Horse. He, mm-hmm. You know, he had other musicians there. And they put an album out. It's got this long name. It's like Viva Dixie Submarine Transmission Plot. And it came out like in mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and was a little bit of an underground kind of thing. And it's interesting and stuff. Um, but the the story that where it starts to get darker and kind of makes the legend is where he was touring with Radiohead mm-hmm. in Europe. And he had taken a bunch of antidepressants and Valium, had some heroin and chased it all down with alcohol. And he basically passed out and had his legs pinned beneath him so long that his legs had to be amputated. Wow. Yeah. That same thing almost happened to Eddie Eddie Money, of all people. Really? Eddie Money, same thing. So drunk and everything that he kind of passed out standing up and then the way that he was laying on his legs cut off the circulation and however I don't know you know science wise how that medically how that happens um, cut off the blood flow I, yeah I guess so well with with uh, Eddie money fortunately uh, he ended up okay from it although apparently it was a touch-and-go situation well Mark Linkus lost his legs Oof. there there are young dudes and you know in various eras who were like the only way John Coltrane could have gotten to that was with heroin. Therefore, I'm going to do heroin. Yeah, see, that's that's bullshit. More people die by that reasoning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but and then it ended up that uh, I think in 2010 he committed suicide. Oh. So you know, it's 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 tragic. It doesn't mean it's genius. Well, and that's and that's just it. it it's tragic, and it sounds like there. And I'm I'm going to listen more because now that I know the backstory. Yeah. So Nick Drake was a manic depressive. Yes. And he would do interesting things where he would do these odd uh, chords. Odd chords, odd tunings. Right, right. You know, and it's 
he did what two? He did three records total. I think three, yeah. Three total. The first two, I think, were, were kind of heavily produced. Yeah. And I didn't like them. I like his third record, third and last record, Pink Moon. Was that the third one, Pink Moon? I think that was the that was the last one because it was right near the end of his life. Right, right. And he just kind of went into a studio and maybe over a night or two. Right. Went, went in there and just recorded this thing. Right. And Pink Moon, Pink Moon is brilliant. Yes, okay. I, that album is a Stone Cold classic. Yes, it, it is. It is absolutely brilliant. Um, if you like that kind of thing, yeah. If you like acoustic music and you like acoustic folky kind of, kind it's of almost music. like more to me, slightly more challenging and more mature singer songwriter seventies music. You know what yes, I mean? Yes. Yeah. It's it's a uh, it's it's you could take certain of his songs and place them among a lot of you know singer songwriters of that era. Right. But the thing that you will come away from is that he's not going to. Uh, immediately appeal to some people because of the weirder tunings right. and you know not intentionally coming and having like this hook you know right and, and yeah he didn't have a lot of hooks yeah um, but what he was doing okay the the stuff the, the chord changes and the way he was singing over what he was playing was so different yeah So I written and I saw it say Bingo Moon is on his way None of you stand so tall Bingo Moon and I get you on so To me, it just it jumped out at me, and, and that's only with Pink Moon. The first two records, I listened to them multiple times to see if they would ever take. Yeah, you know, and they didn't. It is, I, I I'm not po positive about this, but the album Brighter Later, uh, I believe, has the song Riverman. I'm terribly sorry, but that is the wrong answer. The correct answer is Five Leaves Left. Five Leaves Left is the debut album released in 1969. You're welcome. Uh -huh. And and that song is sticks out to me as one that could fit in uh, with Pink Moon or at least that level of quality. Right. And that's been covered by a lot of different people too. Right. Betty came by on the way. Said she had a word to say About things today And fallen leaves Said she hadn't heard the news Hadn't had the time to choose Way to lose See the river man Gonna tell him all I can About the plan For lying in time 
It has. It, it, I probably like that song even better than Pink Moon, and I like Pink Moon. Right. The interesting thing about Pink Moon to me is, for years and years and decades, I've railed against artists' songs being in commercials. Yeah. However, that song exposed him to an audience. Yes. They didn't take an existing song everybody knew and fuck it up. Yeah. You know, they took an obscure song. They also, um, I think, uh, sensitively placed it in a commercial where it wasn't like used as some sort of you know uh, thing to sell laundry detergent right it was sort of like kind of almost like playing on the radio on a romantic evening of this couple who have this nice car you right, know? Yeah. they're definitely selling a product but I don't think it hurt his stature in fact I guarantee that a lot more people went to him after that song than they ever would have before right. You hear a song and it's like, who the fuck is that? And yeah. all of a sudden there's a new person you like. Sure. And uh, there was an app, was an Apple iPad commercial uh, that had the Fratelli's music in the background. Right, right. That's how I discovered the Fratelli's. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that kind of. It thing. can be done. Yeah. All right. So let, you know, moving on back to back to Nick Drake briefly. Uh-huh. Um, Nick Drake. One thing to me was, you know, he was also hugely influential, and I'm sure his suicide had something to do with that. Yeah. But also, he was uh, produced by Joe Boyd. And Joe Boyd did some interesting artists back then, like Fairport Convention and Sandy Denny. Right. And she also has a sad backstory. Often she has gazed from castle windows and watched the daylight passing. But I'd heard about Nick Drake committing suicide and all this kind of stuff before I ever heard a Nick Drake album. Right, yeah, I, I had heard because I had, and well, I think we're going to get to him later on in the podcast, but I really got into Elliot Smith at one point. Right. And Elliot Smith was influenced by Nick Drake. And you always see when people are talking about Elliot Smith, Nick Drake's name always gets thrown in there. Right. So I started listening to Nick Drake based on that. Exactly. Well, of course, you know, uh, Nick Drake did end up committing suicide. He had always had issues. He had always struggled with it a lot to where, you know, there were the things where he couldn't get out of bed and stuff right. like this. Along with everything that was lost and won 
When the day is done When the day is done Hope so much your race will be all wrong Then you find you jump the gun Have to go back where you began When the day is done When the night is cold Some get by, but some get old Just to show life's not made of gold When the night is cold When the bird is flown Got no one to call your own Got no place to call your home To be continued in the next episode. Stay tuned. End of part one. Subscribe to the Untitled Music Podcast on iTunes and Spotify. This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck. <laughs>